Well, good morning. Good to gather with you here this morning. If you're on the fire, uh, I don't know if I should make your way inside. We're about to get started here. And as we, as we come together this morning, we're kind of entering into that season where things start to get busy. There's events all the time. But this morning, we just got a chance to come before our God to quiet our hearts, still our minds, and kind of reflect on all that He's done for us in Jesus. And so, I invite you this morning as we worship and as we hear God's Word to just put aside all other distractions that this season kind of brings with it and just yeah, focus and delight in our Lord. We're going to start the morning by watching a video and then we will worship together. My mama told me something when I was growing up that has forever changed my life. She played the piano at our little church at 3rd and Pine Street for 37 years. She tried to teach me to play the piano, <laughs> but I wasn't very good. She would teach me the names of the notes, what a major key is, what a minor key is. She tried to teach me musical theory, but I was just bored. Then, one day, she told me that the best news in the world is found by playing a simple scale on the piano. I had no idea what she meant, so she told me to play an eight-note scale. So I did. I said, how is that good news? And she said I played it incorrectly and that I needed to play it the other way. So I did. Again, I said, how is that good news? And she said, I played it the right way, but I needed to add the pauses. The pauses? She said, the pauses. Add them on the first, second, fourth, sixth, seventh, and last note. Now, I was frustrated and said, how can eight notes with random pauses be the best news in the world? Then I got up, walked away, and went outside. Frankly, I didn't care what she was talking about. I didn't like playing the piano anyway. Well, years later, my mama got sick and passed away. As I was thinking about her, I remembered what she told me about the piano. Not only that, I still remember the notes she told me to pause. The first, second, fourth, sixth, seventh, and last note. So I sat down at her piano and played the scale with the pauses. And that's when I realized the good news she was talking about. Please stand with us as we join in singing this morning. One, two, three, four.
we continue in this Advent season, we're going to light our next Advent calendar. I'm going to invite the Welsh family up to lead us in that. But they said this week is kind of the, we focus on joy in Advent and all that joy brings. And nothing, nothing brings joy quite like a new baby. And if you may know, there's baby's breath up here. That's to celebrate the birth of Dave and Lori Kirby's newest grandchild, Jack Ryan Kirby. Um, born to Ryan and Paige Kirby. Um, so we celebrate with them the birth, birth of that that child. So this morning, at the conclusion of our um, service, we will take communion together. And so hopefully you grabbed on your way in, you grabbed one of the little cups with, with the wafer and the juice, but if not, you can sneak out and grab one of those. On Sundays, when we celebrate communion together, one of the things we do is we take a benevolence offering. So at the door on your way out, There'll be someone with the, holding a plate. Right? That is a kind of a separate offering for benevolence, where we use, use that to meet the needs of our community. And so you can give your regular tithes and offerings either in the boxes on the back wall or online at tlefc.org/give. Right? But the offering that goes in the plate at the door will be a separate kind of benevolence offering to meet needs in our community. Right? Along with that, if you're if you're aware of any needs in the Community, we'd encourage you, we'd invite you to make the church aware of those needs. We'd want to be able to use that, the funds that we collect to bless and serve our, our community. And so I'd invite you to make the church aware of any needs that you may be aware of. 
Following the service, if you head downstairs, you'll notice there are, there are cookies out. Those are made by our, our youth um, our youth group. It's a, it's a means of a fundraiser. And so if you want to take some cookies, right, it's a free will offering um, to the youth group in exchange for those cookies. But we invite you to head down there um, and yeah, check out the cookie selection. And following, following our service this morning and following the Sunday school hour, we will have our quarterly congregational meeting. So we invite you to, to be a part of that, especially if you're a member here, um, just to hear about what's going on in the church and um, yeah, come together. So we invite you to be part of that. And then later today at 3 o'clock, we will gather again for a, a hymn sing. Uh, so Eric Gustafson will lead us in singing traditional hymns as we each kind of reflect on and remember all that God has done for us in this Christmas season. So we invite you to be be a part of that. Right, and then a couple more announcements the next Sunday. Uh, there will be no Sunday school, but instead we'll have our children's Christmas program during the Sunday school hour. So I'm sure that'll be cute and fun. So I invite you to come check that out. Right. And then on Christmas Eve, we will gather here at 6 p.m. for our traditional um, Christmas Eve service. We invite you to join us for that. So as we kind of continue the time worship, would you pray with me? Father, we, we rejoice this morning just in the, the opportunity to celebrate the coming of your Son, the coming of our Savior Jesus and all that he's done for us. I praise you for the way you've gathered each person here or who's watching us online to take this time to step away from the busyness of the Christmas season, step away from all the activities, We just come before you with quiet minds and reflect on all that you've done for us in Jesus. Would you do that this morning? Would you, would you reveal to us, would you work in us to, to create in us an awe of how great thing it is that Jesus came lived the sinless life among us, died on the cross in our place that we can be forgiven of our sins. We continually be amazed and moved to worship by all that you've done for us in Jesus. And even as we walk through hard seasons, as we have hard times, as there are sad things happening in the world? Would you constantly draw us back to Jesus and remind us of the hope that is found in Him? Would you pray for those in our church family and around the world who are going through hard times, who are struggling with either physical pain or emotional pain or other hurt, that you would be with them, that you would bring comfort where it's needed, that you would bring peace where it's needed. And would you just be at work in each of our lives this morning to draw us a little bit closer to yourself, to reveal to us a little bit more what a great thing you've done for us in Jesus. When we worship you out of an awe of all that you've done for us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
I invite you to stand and worship with us. You know, this morning we're talking about joy, which is such a, a positive emotion. Like when we hear the word joy, it's happiness and positivity. But joy doesn't exist without longing. Happiness doesn't exist without sorrow. You know, these ideas, we don't understand them in their context without the opposite of them. So, you know, in context of the birth of Christ, there was so much longing and so much darkness and that birth of Christ was the joy that followed it. And um, we're just going to sing a little bit about that anticipation this morning, which is what Advent truly is. But I, I really want to point out that idea that, you know, joy is positive and as happy as it is. It, it, it doesn't exist without the hard part of it, without the hard part of Advent. This morning we're going to sing about Come No Long Expected Jesus, a little bit about the longing. One, two.
Father, you are altogether worthy of all our praise, all our worship. Thank you for that. Thank you that you are worthy. You are wonderful. But our lives reflect that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It occurred to me that I was sitting down there that I got up here a few times this morning, but never actually introduced myself. So my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here. If you're visiting or new, we're glad you're here with us. Um, yeah, good to have you here. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience, like, but every once in a while I have this experience where like the story I tell myself about who I am runs like smack in the inconvenient facts that contradict how I think about myself. Right? So for example, like I like to think of myself as like a pretty well read person. Like I like I like to read. I read pretty broadly. I read fiction. I read nonfiction. I read I read different genres. Right? I'd like to think of myself as a fairly well read individual. But then, like, recently it occurred to me that I've never read anything, like, in full by Charles Dickens. And it seems like you shouldn't be allowed to consider yourself a well-read person if you've never read anything by one of the most important authors of all time. Like, he's the reason we say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Christmas, because he popularized that phrase in A Christmas Carol. Like, he's an important figure, and I've never read anything in full by him. I think the reason is, like, in high school, we had to read a little excerpt of Great Expectations, and it was painful. Like, like, I didn't do, like, I didn't like doing assigned reading anyway, but that was, oh, like, I just, and, like, that was, like, oh, that was my picture of Charles Dickens, like, I can't do that. But then I realized, like, I've never, never read anything in full by him, and I thought, well, surely, right? That was just my, like, naive, unsophisticated high school self. Right? But now I'm older, and I'm, I'm more mature, and I'm super sophisticated now. So, like, now I can read Dickens, and I'll, I'll appreciate whatever everyone else appreciates. So I decided I'd give him another shot. And so one of the perks of Dickens being old is that all his work's in the public domain, so I got a free copy of Oliver Twist on my Kindle and just went in. Like, and you probably know the basics of the story of Oliver Twist. Right? The book, he's orphaned at birth, and the book follows his plight through like, the, this kind of corrupt welfare system of 19th century England. So you probably know the classic scene from the book, or if not from the book, from the movie version, where Oliver has the audacity to ask for a, sec- a second portion of gruel. Right? The famous line is, like, please, sir, I want some more. And like the result of that is he is like sent to confinement and he's threatened with being hanged for having the audacity to ask for a second portion of gruel. And that scene happened like pretty early in the book, chapter chapter two. But shortly shortly after that event, like he's Oliver is saved from his impending hanging, like for a moment by this like seemingly fortuitous turn of events, right? This this glimmer of hope. Like maybe you think everything's gonna be okay. For Oliver, he's saved from this bad situation. But soon, Oliver finds himself in an even worse situation. And this pattern repeats itself over and over again throughout the book. 
Oliver, Oliver would be in a bad situation. But there, something good for a moment would happen that give us like this slight glimmer of hope that maybe everything's going to be okay. But then something else would happen that would quickly smash that hope and like things would be even worse than before. Right? So things just got worse and worse until like I had to quit reading. I couldn't finish it. And so like I had to like give up this notion of myself as a well read person because I've still never read anything by Dickens in full. Right? And like I realized Dickens' point, like his whole point was to expose how broken the whole welfare system was and England in the 19th century. Like, the bleak and sad feeling that I was feeling was, like, what he was after. But I couldn't finish it. Like, I just couldn't handle the prospect of things getting worse and worse and worse with only these small glimmers of hope. But before I stopped, I I did have the thought that, like, I couldn't think of how reminiscent Oliver's story is of Israel's story in the Old Testament. The story of Israel is largely of things going poorly. Like, if you just like randomly flip through your Old Testament and like put your finger down and like figure out what's going on, like odds are things are bad for Israel at that moment. Like, like it's a story of things going poorly, but then interspersed with these like small glimmers of hope. And these glimmers of hope often come in the form of promises right, that God would one day send a Messiah. God would one day send a Savior who would save Israel from the trials that they found themselves in. And so this, this Advent season, we've been walking through this series that I've called Waiting. And the reason we've called this series Waiting is that like, a large part of like, what we want to reflect on and remember during this season is how the Israelites were waiting and waiting and waiting for a Savior to come. They've been waiting for the one who would ultimately bring resolution to all the bad things that had happened to them in their history. But it can be a little bit hard for us to grasp like, just how long their wait was. Like two weeks ago, we started this series by looking at Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve sin. But then God promises Eve that one day, right, one of her offering would come and she would crush the serpent's head. So that was like the first promise, the first glimmer of hope that one day everything would turn out okay. And there's lots of views among faithful, Bible-believing Christians about how long ago Adam and Eve lived. But if you take like the most conservative approach and like assume there's no gaps in any of the genealogies and just follow the genealogy back to Adam and Eve, like bare minimum, Adam and Eve lived 4,000 years before Jesus. So just think about that. 4,000 years from Adam and Eve, from that first promise to Jesus. For thousands and thousands of years, God's people were repeating these promises to each other. From one generation to the next, like they would tell each other, someday like God's going to send a Savior. Someday God is going to send the one who would crush the head of Satan. And for thousands of years. It would be pretty easy to believe that promise and similar promises, when, when things were going well for God's people. But as we said, like more often than not, in Israel's history, things weren't going well. Either because like, the people of Israel themselves were wicked, right? there were God, like, godless people thriving within Israel, 
or things would not be going well because there were enemies outside of Israel who were threatening to attack them and enslave them. And like when things weren't going well for Israel, you can imagine how hard it would have been to trust these promises. To trust that God really was going to come through. Like in some of these moments in Israel's history, it must have been hard to believe that God actually cared what was going on with his people. Like when it, it seemed like the wicked are prevailing, like it'd be easy to wonder, like, how is God involved in this? The same thing can be true for us. Right? When things are going well in our lives, it's easy to believe that God cares. God's blessing us, that God's on our side. But when things aren't going so well, when things are hard, when things are difficult, when the world around us seems broken, like, it can be hard to wait on God to make things right. It can be hard to believe that God is really invested in our own lives. And on this, this third week of Advent, like, we're remembering the joy right, that accompanies the Savior coming to earth. But if we're being honest, it can be hard sometimes to find joy in a world where it seems like the wicked are winning. The wicked are prospering. Which is why passages like Psalm 37 are so important. Psalm 37 seems to teach us how to joyfully wait for God, even when it seems like the wicked are prevailing. So we're going to be in Psalm 37 this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. If you need one, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And as you turn there, just a couple of details that are important about this psalm. First, it's written by David. We don't know a lot about like, what time frame he actually wrote it in, but it's written by David. And in the original Hebrew, this, this poem is an acrostic, right? with each set of four lines starting with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so that's kind of the structure of the psalm. We're not going to read the whole thing this morning. We're just going to read verses 1 through 11. Let's read this together. David writes, Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass they will soon wither, like green plants they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will do this. He will make your righteous rewards shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways or when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. If I were to like, try to summarize this kind of whole passage, these 11 verses in one sentence, I would do it like this. Delighting in the Lord allows us to joyfully wait for God's justice, even when it seems 
like the wicked are prevailing. And like that summary, kind of why this passage seems so appropriate for like the week of Advent centered on joy and during a series called Waiting. This, this passage ties joy and waiting together in a beautiful way. In verse 4 we read, Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And so this is a command to be, to be joyful in God, right? to, to find delight in Him. Knowing God rightly and being obedient to Him will lead us into joy. But this psalm also tells us in verse 7 to wait. Verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. This is this call to wait for God. So there are these, these two commands that, that are brought together. Delight in the Lord, find your joy in the Lord, and wait on God. And on the surface, those maybe don't seem like particularly hard commands. But there's, there's a problem. And that problem and it's a problem that makes it hard to find joy and hard to wait patiently. And the problem is that there is evil in the world. It's easy to be joyful and to delight in God when everything is going well. When all seems right in the world, it's easy to be patient and to wait on God. Because you can see the evidence of the good things that are coming. When things aren't going so well, when everything in the world seems to be going wrong, it makes it much harder to be joyful and to wait patiently. Like verse 1 sets out this problem very clearly. It says, Do not fret because of those who are evil. And so there's a command here, like, do not fret, and we'll come back to that. But more importantly for right now, there's also an assumption in this verse. And that assumption is that there are those who are evil. That there is evil in the world. And that evil is a real and a present threat at the time that David is writing this psalm. And later in this same psalm, like past what we read this morning, this will become even more clear. In verse 12, David writes, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. And in verse 14 we read, The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. So there is, there is evil in the world. And that evil is a real and present threat to the righteous people in Israel. But the problem goes even deeper than that. Because not only is there evil in the world, but the evil people are also prospering. It could be one thing, right? If there was evil in the world, but, but, the, evil, but the evil people seem to get what they deserved. Right? If the plans of the evil were thwarted time and time again, like, that would be great. But that's clearly not the case. Again, verse 1. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. But the only reason to be envious of someone is if they're being rewarded for their actions. If the evil deeds were being met with failure after failure, there would be nothing to be envious of and this command would be pointless. But David feels the need to remind people, don't be envious. And the implication then is, like, not only is there evil in the world, but that evil is prospering. Evil deeds seem to be being rewarded during this time. 
and therefore is causing the righteous to envy the wicked. Like that's the problem that this whole psalm has been written to address. That there is evil in the world, and that evil is prospering. So then this psalm then raises questions. Like, like in, the, in light of that, like how do I live a life that is faithful to God? How do I maintain my trust in God when it seems like He's turning a blind eye towards evil? Like, how can I live a life that honors God in a world where so many evil deeds are taking place? Those are some of the questions that would have been going through the minds of the people in David's day. They're the questions that this psalm seeks to answer. And like, they're the same questions that we often encounter today. Like, it's not hard to look out at the world and to not only see evil, but to see evil prospering. And so we're left with these big questions as we look out at the world and see evil prospering. Like, we have these questions like, like, how do I understand God in light of what is happening in the world? How do I live a life that is faithful to God in the midst of all the evil that is going on around me? And the rest of the psalm, David seeks to answer those questions. He seeks to give us a, a solution to the big problem that he lays out in verse 1. And the solution David gives us comes really in two parts. The first part has to do with how we relate to God as we live in a fallen world. And the second part has to do with how we live our lives, the actions we take as we live in a world where evil seems to prosper. So first this morning, I want to think about how we're told to relate to God in a fallen and a broken world. And what David tells us is that despite of the presence of evil, like despite of all the things that are going wrong, we should delight in the Lord. We already looked at verse 4 again, but one more time it says, Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Like Even in the midst of all the evil that's going on in David's world, he encourages the people around him, to take delight in the Lord. And there are a number of, of similar exhortations throughout this passage. In verse 3, he, David tells us to trust in the Lord. Verse 5, the command to commit your way to the Lord. So if we take all these together, right, the idea is that we should, we should trust Him, we should delight in the Lord, even in the midst of all the evil that is going on in the world. But that just raises another question which is, why? Why should I find joy in the Lord when there's evil in the world? When there's brokenness and pain and suffering going on, why should I find delight in God? Why should I trust Him? And the answer to those questions for David, the trust that God's plans, God's vision, is more long-term than our vision, than our plans. Like to us, it may seem like the wicked are prevailing because they're prevailing right now in this moment, right? We tend to th- and so we tend to think that because they're prevailing now, their prevailing will go on forever. We look at verses 1 and 2 again. David said, Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. So you give this command, but then verse 2 it tells us why. For the grass, will, for like the grass, they will soon wither like green plants, they will soon die away. 
So David uses this imagery of grass and plants. And in Israel, at their kind of rainy season, was often early spring. So the rain would fall in early spring, and the hills of Israel would bloom with all these grasses and lush plant life. It would be this beautiful scene. But by late spring, the rain would stop, the temperatures would rise, and by late spring, all that grass and all that plant life is already brown. The grass is only green on the hills of Israel for a very, very short time. In fact, like throughout the whole Bible, like the, there's the picture of, of grass dying is used as a symbol of brevity. And that's the picture that David is driving at here. Even though it seems like the wicked are prospering, they will soon be defeated. Verses 9 and 10 drive that point home. David writes in verses 9 and 10, For those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. For a little while, a little while, and and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. Just a little while, he says, and the wicked will be no more. And believing that, believing that just a little while and the wicked will be no more, believing that is the key to to being able to delight in the Lord even in the midst of evil. But we have to understand that when David says, a little while, he's speaking of a little while from God's perspective. He's talking about a little while relative to eternity. Because our own lives are so short, so brief on this earth, it can seem like the wicked go on prospering forever. But if we zoom out and we see things from God's perspective, we can see that what David says here is true, that he will soon deal with the evil that is in this world. It will be over shortly from God's perspective. And if we believe that, it frees us up to delight in the Lord. If you want a picture of what it looks like to to delight in the Lord in the midst of pain and suffering and evil, just think of Paul and Silas in the book of Acts. Acts 16 in particular. In this passage, right, Paul casts a demon out of a young girl who, who was using that demon to predict the future. She was a slave girl, and so her ability to predict the future was making her masters lots of money. And so Paul casts this demon out. Now the girl can't tell the future anymore, and the owners get mad. And so they have Paul and Silas arrested. And picking up in verse 19 of Acts chapter 16, we read this. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they were severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So Paul and Silas are beaten. They're thrown in jail with their feet in stocks, all for doing something good, for casting out a demon of a girl. This is a picture of evil in the world, that the response to their action would be to throw them in jail. Like that, 
evil. And they're beaten, they're thrown in jail, and how do they respond? Verse 25 tells us, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Right? Their experience of being beaten and imprisoned like, did not make them lose faith in God. Instead, they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They were delighting in God, even though like, they were dealing with living in a world where evil was prospering. And as you read Paul's letter throughout the rest of the New Testament, like, it's clear that the reason he could endure such hardship and continue to find joy in God is that he had unshakable faith that, that one day God's justice would prevail. Paul was confident that God would deal with all the evil that Paul had experienced. So the first part of the solution to living life in a world where evil is prospering is to delight in God and the trust that one day He will deal with all evil. But that leads then to a second question, which is, like, if that's true, then how should I live? Like right now, how should I live my life as I wait for God to deal with the wicked? David's answer to that question is very straightforward. He says, do good. Insofar as it depends on you, like dedicate your life to doing good deeds. The first line of verse 3 could almost be a, a summary statement for this whole psalm. In fact, like it could really be a summary of how each of us ought to live our lives. If you're just going to choose like one little tidbit of Scripture to like lock in your brain to help guide decisions about how you live life, like you could do a lot worse than the first line of verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Like place your trust in the Lord. Like trust that He had the plan. Trust that even in the presence of evil in the world, He is in control. Trust in the Lord. And then, do good. And that's a pretty simple summary of how to live life. But there's an important distinction that we also have to make here. That's the distinction between doing good and fighting evil. And I don't know about you, but like when I look out in the world and I see wickedness, when I see evil, like my first like, gut response is to get angry. And like frankly, I, when it's real wickedness, I want to see harm come to those who are doing evil. Right, but notice what verses 8 and 9 of this psalm say. Like, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Like our response to seeing wickedness in the world, like we should still like refrain from anger and turn from our own wrath. Like a lot of times when we see evil being done, like it stirs up anger and a desire for wrath in our hearts. And we seek to find, we seek to fight the evil we see out of our own anger. Like, and because we're opposing evil, we suppose that we're doing good. But this psalm makes it clear. There's a difference, there's a distinction between fighting evil that way and actually doing good. David makes clear that fighting evil out of our own anger, out of our own desire for wrath, only leads to more evil. 
I think about like that distinction between like fighting evil and doing good. I often I often think of Batman, right? Bruce Wayne. Right? So here's the guy he, he inherits billions of dollars right, when his parents are murdered. And so because he has all these billions of dollars, he has a choice to make. Right? Like he could use those billions of dollars to help meet needs of the people of Gotham City. Right? He could use those billions of dollars to seek to make Gotham City a better place. Like he could choose, in short, to do good with his billions. So that's choice number one. Right? Choice number two, he could invest those billions in things like a Batmobile and a Batcave and all kinds of Bat gadgets and seek vengeance for the death of his parents. And of course, we know what he chooses. He chooses to seek vengeance. But if you've ever seen a Batman movie, like you know that his choice to seek vengeance actually kind of leaves all kinds of destruction in its wake. Like there's explosions everywhere, people's houses and cars and everything's being blown up. And Batman chooses to use his billions of dollars to fight evil, right, to seek vengeance rather than to do good. And it's hard to argue that the net result is a positive thing for Gotham City. I'm like, look, I know that's a drastic oversimplification. Right? And I'm not, like, I'm not trying to disparage Batman. Like, if you like Batman, I'm not here to like, give you a hard time. Like, I really think it's a, it's a story, and no one's going to buy a comic book about a guy who quietly donated billions of dollars to whatever. Like, it's not going to work. So, like, I'm not, but I just, I just want to highlight the distinction. That there's a difference between actively fighting evil or choosing to do good. And the command of this verse is to do good. Paul sums up this distinction really well, I think, in Romans chapter 12. He writes this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so here's, here's the big question in this passage. When you're confronted with evil, either directly or you just see it going on in the world, is your response anger and a desire for vengeance? Or is your response to evil in the world to do good and to live at peace with everyone and to leave room for God's wrath? Do you find yourself being overcome by evil or do you seek to overcome evil with good? Like I know right, there is so much wrong and broken in the world. And we have social media platforms and cable news networks who love nothing more than to stir up anger in us. To stir up our desire for wrath and vengeance and payback. But here's, here's my encouragement as we wrap up this morning. 
Don't give in to that temptation to seek vengeance. Don't act out of your anger. Instead, do what David says here and do good. Overcome evil with good. Don't seek vengeance, but instead be meek. Verse 11, the last verse we read in the psalm, says this. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Like, our culture is not one that rewards meekness. Our culture rewards boldness and power and decisive action and strong action. So much of that, I think, like, we don't really take verses like this all that seriously. It doesn't seem to make sense. Like, we try to redefine what meek means. But in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' longest and clearest teaching about how we ought to live as his followers. He uses these very words. In Matthew 5, 5, right, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Those who are meek are the ones who will inherit the earth. And those who leave vengeance to God are the ones who will live with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And the reason we ought to be meek, the reason we should rejoice that it is God who takes vengeance and not our job, is that we all once were deserving of that very vengeance. Colossians 1, starting at verse 21, Paul writes, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You can look out the world and see evil. But do you acknowledge that like, Paul's talking about you here? That you once had your own evil behavior? And aren't you glad that someone didn't come along and seek vengeance for your evil behavior before God said it was time? Like, we were all once God's enemies. We all once did evil things just like the world around us. We all deserved God's wrath. But Paul doesn't stop there in verse 21. The very next verse, in verse 22, Paul says this, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Like we were all once just as deserving of God's wrath as any other evil we see in the world around us. But then Jesus came and he lived a sinful life and he died on the cross in our place. And on the cross, God's wrath against all our evil deeds was poured out on Jesus instead of us. And that's why Christmas and Advent are such a big deal. Because they remind us that Jesus came to turn us from enemies of God into friends of God. That's also why we, why we celebrate communion. Right? To remember like, what God did for us in sending Jesus. In communion, He turned us from enemies into His children. He made us, as Paul said, without blemish and free from accusation. 
But it's only because of what Jesus did on our behalf. So we're going to take communion together in a minute. But, but first, like, if you're here, you're watching, you've you never trusted in Jesus. Right? It's only through trusting in Him that this is true of you. That you are turned from God's enemy into His child. If you've never trusted in Jesus, trusted that His perfect life is yours in your place, if you've placed your faith in Him, like, I would invite you, I'd encourage you to place your faith in Him. If you have questions about what that means, what that all entails, then I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that. For those of us who are here who have trusted in Jesus, before we take communion, I just want to give us a few minutes to reflect on all that God has done for us. How He has taken our evil deeds. He has taken our God's wrath against us. And through sending Jesus, He has forgiven us. Let's give us a few minutes to reflect on that and to Repent of any sins that maybe you feel the need to repent of this morning. And then in a few minutes, I will come back up here and lead us in communion. Even when we were your 
enemies, even when we are doing evil things. You did not leave us in our sin. That you came, you sent your Son, Jesus, to die on our behalf, to live a sinless life in our place. But when we place our faith in Him, you see as if we live the sinless life that Jesus lived. You pour out all your just wrath against our sin on Jesus on the cross. Thank you for communion or the way you remind us of that. In Jesus' name, Amen. For the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it. And He said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Partake. The same way, <clears throat> after supper, he took the cup. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Partake. Father, we thank you for this tangible, physical reminder of all you've done for us in Jesus. We never forget would these truths never grow stale. But we be continually amazed by what a great God you are, what an amazing Savior Jesus is. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now as we, we go from here, my hope, my prayer is that we would go not seeking vengeance, but that we would go living out Psalm 37.3, that you would go trusting in the Lord and doing good. You are dismissed. Um.